Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to go all the way back to our roots, our roots being a massive city-destroying fire. Except this time we're going to do it a bit differently. You see, there's a certain city in the United States that has such a penchant for catching on fire and burning. Now, it's probably because it's the biggest and most famous city in the United States, so it's obviously going to have a lot of attention, but still, three separate city-destroying fires is a lot. So, New York City, maybe you need to chill out a bit? Yes, that's right, we're going back to the Big Apple for another fire episode. The first episode in New York City was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. That was a bad day. This is going to be several bad days over about 70 years. Because yes, New York City has had three city-wide conflagrations since its founding, but we'll get to that. Let's first do a crash course on the history of New York City. So the New York City we know now is one of the most populous cities in the entire world, and the most populous city in the United States with 8.8 million people living in the 300 square miles that make up the town. But it wasn't always that way. A long, long time ago, the area that would become New York City was inhabited by an, an Algonquin tribe known as the Lenape. They had lived there for generations, as long as anyone could remember. But after a renowned manatee lover and overall butthead, Christopher Columbus discovered an island in the Caribbean that he thought was a completely different place, several more explorers with better sense then began journeys across the Atlantic. In 1524, the first European arrived in what would eventually be known as New York Harbor. That was an Italian man exploring for the French crown by the name of Giovanni de Verrazzano. 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 Sorry about that. He did some exploring all up and down the eastern seaboard of North America, and eventually ended up kidnapping a young Native American boy to take back to France for... reasons? They also tried to kidnap a woman, but she screamed so loud they decided that wasn't a good idea. This is the first interaction that Europeans had with the area of New York City was an attempted kidnapping and an actual kidnapping for reasons that we don't really know because they wanted to show them off who knows who knows why europeans explorers did any of the things they did why did christopher columbus have relations with a manatee that he thought was a mermaid I, we can't explain these things anyway giovanni named the area new angolim in honor of the french crown the area would then be regularly visited over the next several decades by various traders that were there for fur and other things like that. But it wasn't until 1609 when Henry Hudson, in the employee of the Dutch East India Company, in search of the Northwest Passage that didn't exist, thought he found the Northwest Passage and sailed up what would become, you guessed it, the Hudson River. Noticing there were a large amount of beavers in the area and never wanted to miss out on making some cash, Henry Hudson decided to claim the area for the Dutch East India Company. This area then became claimed by the Netherlands, who called it, creatively, New Netherland. The other thing that early European explorers, besides being weird and kidnapping random things and, you know, murdering random people and enslaving random people and having intimate relations with animals... Uh, they also were really bad at naming things. So there's a lot of, well, New Netherland and New France and New Spain and New York and things like that. But anyway, in 1624, the first permanent settler arrived at Governor's Island. Not called that then, but just to give you an idea of where the first settlement was. So if you've never been to New York City... If you are standing at the very southern tip of Manhattan Island, which is the island where all the big the uh, big buildings are, if you're standing at the very southern tip, looking straight south, Governor's Island will be to your would be the east. So it'd be the big island to your left. So if you're standing at the very southern tip, if you look to your right, you'll see the Statue of Liberty and uh, Ellis Island, which is not where the Statue of Liberty is. If you look to your left, you'll see Governor's Island. That is where the first permanent settlement was in the New York, the New York City area. 
After that settlement was founded, they got to work building Fort Amsterdam, yet again, not creative, on Manhattan Island. Now, there is a legend that the island of Manhattan was purchased from Native Americans in 1626 for glass beads worth about $24. This is not true. Like, it is not true at all. This comes from a random history test book in the 1800s and isn't factual. There is, however, a letter written in 1626 that says they purchased the island from Native Americans for 60 guilders, Dutch currency at the time, which is about $1,000 now. This is also majorly suspect. The man who wrote the letter, which does exist and is real, probably never actually went to New Amsterdam at the time, so his knowledge seems suspect at best. It's likely he was reporting what someone on the ship back from New Amsterdam told him, and there is evidence of other sales of bits of land around New York City that do not corroborate with this sale. And on top of all that, it's most likely that the natives who would have engaged in this deal believed they were essentially leasing the land to the Dutch, not outright selling it. That's a really big difference, considering the Dutch thought they owned the land, and the natives thought they were just going to be there a short time. There's actually evidence of a town meeting of the Dutch in which one farmer complained that the Native Americans were not leaving the land that they bought, most likely because the natives believed that they had just leased the land and they were only going to be there a short time. They didn't actually own the physical land. It was just kind of a, okay, you can use this or you can pass through and then that's that. That's probably why they, you know, agreed for such a little amount in all of these sales that are actually recorded. They didn't think they were physically giving something away. They thought they were just agreeing to a usage for a short period of time. But anyway, New Amsterdam officially became a city on February 2nd, 1653. Alright, so now we're going to fast forward a bit to 1664. Specifically, August 27th, 1664. Four English ships arrived in New Amsterdam Harbor and forced the surrender of the city to the English under the order of James, the Duke of York. This was essentially a gambit to get England and the United Provinces, the Netherlands, at war. It would eventually work. The Dutch and English would end up in the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which the English, who picked the fight in the first place, would lose. But the colony stayed with the English, and the town of New Amsterdam was changed to New York, named after the guy who sent the ships there to you know, capture it before they were at war. It was briefly recaptured by the Dutch in 1673 during the Third Anglo-Dutch War. There will be a repeat of trilogies in this episode. And renamed New Orange. Seriously, guys, these are not creative names, considering Orange was the name of the royal family of Netherlands. Before being permanently given to the English at the end of that war in exchange for Suriname in South America. So, the Dutch traded... New York, New Orange at the time, to England in exchange for England's hold on Suriname in South America. Alright, so next we get 100 years of English rule. It became a haven for international trade from the English colonies back to England. That's because it had a very, very good port. It also became a major location for slavery in the colonies, again because it had a very good port. It is estimated that in 1703, 42% of New York's households had at least one slave, which was more than any city in the colony besides Charleston, South Carolina. Slavery was a huge part of the economy in New York City in the 1700s, and it was a huge driving force in why the city became what it is today. One of the major reasons why New York City became the driving force in the revolution and one of the big areas that was fought over in the Revolutionary War and then became a major city in the United States, was because of these early slaves that helped build it to what it is today. Well, didn't help. Were forcibly made to build it into what it became and what it would grow into. So, throughout the 1700s, New York played a huge role in anything that was going on in the colonies. During the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War if you lived in the United States, New York City was the base for all British military endeavors to fight the French. And this is where we get the first rumblings of some discord between the colonies and the British. They wanted to fight the French, and they wanted to fight the natives that were fighting alongside the French. 
but they also wanted to expand westward into what would be the Ohio River Valley and Pennsylvania and all that territory. The problem became many of the British officers took one look at the militias that the colonies raised and said, I'm not fighting with them, and sent them home and instead demanded they feed the British and house the British and clothe the British and give them, you know, weapons and all of that kind of stuff. And this really put a thorn in the side of the colonists who wanted to help fight to defend their homeland, England. They wanted to help defend the empire from the French and the natives and were basically told, no, you're just here to supply, to add supplies to what we have. In the end, even without having the colonists fight for them, the British won. Not easily, but they did it all the same. But it came at a huge cost. You see, it is not at all cheap to send troops and supplies and ships all the way across the Atlantic to fight in a war in an entirely different hemisphere on an entirely different continent. It cost the crown a ton of money, and they needed a way to make that money back. And so the crown decided that, hey, we fought this war in the colonies in defense of the colonists. They should be the ones helping to pay us back for their defense that we would not allow them to do on their own. After the war, the British decided to leave a 10,000-man standing army permanently stationed in the colonies. Why? It seems to be something like defending newly acquired territory and protecting from Native American attacks, but no one in the colonies really asked for that. It seems more likely that they left the standing army because the officers in that army were going to continue to get paid for that job that they were doing, that if they disbanded the army, they would no longer have, and a lot of those officers had very influential families who would have been very put out if their son or husband or son-in-law or whoever lost their job and didn't have a source of income anymore. So, why not leave them in the colonies and make the colonists pay for it? No, really. Obviously, you can't just have a standing army without paying them or feeding them or housing them, and... British were sure not going to pay for that. They were defending the colonists, after all. So they did something that had never been done before. They taxed the colonists. This was hailed as a great idea. Ha! Just kidding. Everyone hated it to their core. Well, all of the colonists hated it to their core. The first one was the Sugar Act, which actually lowered taxes on molasses imported to the colony. You see, originally, the Molasses Act in 1733 had placed such a high tax on imported molasses into the colonies, they hoped it would create a monopoly and they would only import from the British West Indies instead of the French West Indies. As we all know, the colonists decided smuggling would be better and just ignored the tax, because if there was one lucrative business in the American colonies at the time, it was smuggling. They were smuggling everything. So the Sugar Act in 1764 actually halved the tax on molasses in the hopes that it would actually be followed and generate revenue. And it kind of worked, but it really angered the colonists. But not nearly as bad as what the British Parliament would attempt next. So what did they attempt next? That's right, the legendary, infamous Stamp Act of 1765. So the sugar tax was not doing what the Parliament wanted to do, namely raising money to help get back to not-in-debt caused by the Seven Years' War. So they came up with a different tax called the Stamp Act. This more or less required that nearly every document in the colonies required a stamp that had to be paid for in order to distribute or use the documents. Without the stamp, they were in violation of the tax. And it wasn't just like major documents like wills and deeds and that kind of stuff. It was everything. Newspapers, playing cards, sets of dice, just random pamphlets sent out to people... They had to put the stamp, tax, stamp on everything, and it was all taxed. As you can expect, this was not even remotely close to popular. The opposition was immediate when the act was just a rumor, let alone when it actually passed. This led to many of the colonies officially sending letters of protest to Parliament and organizing a meeting of all the colonies in New York City. And it also led to some civilian protests that led to the usual property damage burnings and apparently at least one tar and feathering of an official in Virginia who insisted on implementing the tax. And that stamp act lasted less than a year. Because, again, it was all around a terrible idea. 
This was one of the first times New York City was really viewed as a rallying point for the colonists. It would not be the last. At around this same time, the British Parliament also passed the Quartering Act, which meant the colonists had to feed and house and supply the standing army the British decided to leave in the colonies. New York, and New York City in particular, said no, no thank you, we won't be doing that. We didn't want them here in the first place, we sure as hell won't be housing or feeding them. And so the British Parliament passed an act to punish New York specifically because they were not doing that. Which went over super well, of course. But I should note here that New York City did actually agree to provide some of their needs, so that act was never officially enforced, but they still passed it, which wasn't popular. The next big thing the British did was pass the Tea Act in 1773. What this act did was lift the uh, East India Company's ban on importing tea directly into the colonies, so they didn't have to sell it, they just could just import it straight in, which they then could sell to the colonists at a cheaper price than the tea that the Dutch were smuggling in, which seems like it should be good for the colonists. They get cheaper tea, the East India Company doesn't go bankrupt, and the British government gets to keep their tax that the colonists are paying. Except, if there's one thing we all know about Americans, it's that we hate paying taxes, even if those taxes would end up making life cheaper for us. And we especially hate paying taxes if we are being taxed without representation. You see, the colonists' main problem was they were receiving these taxes, but they did not have their own representatives in Parliament. Parliament disagreed with this. Parliament said that they were being virtually represented because the people who lived in England that didn't own land were also not technically represented in Parliament because you had to own land to be represented to be able to vote. And, well, they didn't own land in England, so they weren't able to vote. But those people who didn't own land in England were still being represented by the people that were elected. They were just being represented virtually. It's a really stupid. It's a really dumb way of saying, yeah, you're being represented. You just don't get to choose who your representative is, and they're going to make decisions without thinking about what you want whatsoever at all. There was also a lot of grumpiness because originally the East India Company would have to sell the tea at the Central Exchange in London, which would then be imported at a markup to the colonies through a middleman. What this act did was basically allow the, the East India Company to import directly to the colonies, which put two sets of people out of work. It cut the importers or the middlemen out of work because they're no longer importing it to the colonies from London. And it also cut the smugglers out of work because the East India Company could now sell their tea for cheaper than the smugglers were selling it for. So then in late 1773, a very large shipment of tea was sent to the colonies. It had an expiration date, basically when it had to be offloaded, or it was no longer good, of December 16th, 1773. Now, the tea had arrived well before then, but vigilant colonists had been watching the boats and refused to allow the tea to be offloaded onto the docks in all of the harbors where they were. And then on the expiration date, December 16th, 1773, groups of individuals all up and down the eastern seaboard, dressed up as Native Americans, snuck onto the ships and launched the tea overboard into the water, the most famous of which happened in Boston and became known as the Boston Tea Party. All of those acts, there were several more that, they were, that we didn't talk about, were collectively called the Townshend Acts. What happened after the Boston Tea Party are known as the Intolerable Acts. The Intolerable Acts were a series of acts implemented essentially to punish Massachusetts for the Boston Tea Party and brought Massachusetts under direct control of the British government. This was supposed to make an example out of Massachusetts and show what could happen to the other colonies if they didn't shape up. It made an example alright and basically spurred the other colonies to join forces with Massachusetts and create the First Continental Congress and then subsequently the start of the American Revolution. So that brings us to 1774 to 1775. The battles of Lexington and Concord are soon to happen. Things are rapidly devolving into accusations of loyalty to the crown or being a traitor to the crown or many other things like that. It was generally not a good time in the colonies. The Assembly of New York 
was certainly not helping matters in New York City. They were majority loyal to the Crown, and so the group, the Sons of Liberty, attempted to create their own committee to work with the other colonies on behalf of New York, who were planning the Continental Congress. I say attempted, because it became less radically liberal than it could have been, because several wealthy landowners showed up to take part and almost, but not quite, outnumbered the Sons of Liberty. They creatively called it the Committee of 51 because it had 51 members. They then voted on and sent delegates to the First Continental Congress. That Continental Congress agreed on not importing anything from England. New York's Assembly did not agree with this and refused to implement it. They also refused to appoint delegates to the Second Continental Congress in May of 1775. So the now Committee of 60, because it now had 60 members, did both of those things. Things began to get extremely heated as tar and featherings occurred throughout the city and loyalists were attacked and forced to damn King George in the streets, and if they did not, they were at risk of being tarred and feathered. Then, in April of 1775, the news of the Lexington and Concord battles arrived, and things went even more chaotic. Groups of patriots would descend on known loyalists and essentially kick them out of the city. Things proceeded through 1775, with the Battle of Bunker Hill being a technical victory for the British, but at great cost, and George Washington being named the Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, much to the chagrin of Charles Lee, and a British man-of-war with 64 guns parked in New York Harbor and kind of just sat there menacingly threatening the city that was now officially under the control of the American colonists and patriots. Now, this is where New York City becomes insanely important, especially to the British, and where we really start to get into the really close beginnings of our fire in New York City. If you look at a map of the 13 colonies, there's really three major cities. There's Boston in the north, there's New York City in the middle, and there's Charleston in the south. The British plan was to cut the colonies in half. In order to do that, they needed to take New York City. And, not only that, but the Hudson provided deep access back into the country, as well as having an excellent harbor for them to store all of their excellent ships in the British fleet. And on top of all that, it would give them a place to have shelter for the winter, especially because a large portion of New York City was filled with loyalists to the crown, despite the fact that the city was now under the control of the Patriots. It was no secret that Massachusetts and Virginia were the two most rebellious colonies. Taking New York City cut them off from aiding one another, so the British plan was to put one army in New York City, one army at the other end of the Hudson at Fort Ticonderoga, and then just meet in the middle, cutting all of America in half. Because you have to remember, at this point, the British have taken all of the center of the United States away from the French. They own all of Canada. They are have a major base up in Quebec. All they have to do is place an army up in Quebec, place an army in New York City, travel down the Hudson towards each other, and they've effectively cut the colonies in half. And they're, if one gets trapped on the north side and one army gets trapped on the south side, they can't meet and share supplies, and all of that, especially once winter comes. Now, this sounds like a great plan, and it probably would have been a great plan. Um, unfortunately for the British, they put uh, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne in charge of, well, the half that was coming down from Quebec, and, well, Gentleman Johnny decided to party his way down, and he didn't make it very far at all. So that kind of ended that plan. So we have fully set the stage here. It's 1775 in New York City. The colonies in England are at war. Now, there's a place on Manhattan Island in New York City called Battery Park. It's on the very southern tip of Manhattan Island. It is called Battery Park because there was an artillery battery there. In late 1775, those guns were held in control by the British. This was a problem for the American colonists because they didn't have many cannons and they wanted cannons. And they had that giant man of war sitting there in the New York Harbor just staring at them, threatening them with its 64 cannons. They needed to do something to shore up the defenses of New York City. So what did they do? Well, Hercules Mulligan, 
and his lesser-known friend, Alexander Hamilton, helped in a raid to steal them from the British at midnight on August 23, 1775. They were spotted trying to haul 11 of the 21 guns up a hill, because of course they were, and some nearby troop British troops fired a musket shot at the man of war the Asia to signal that their guns on shore were being stolen. The American troops then fired at a nearby British ship, killing one man because they thought they were under attack. So then the Asia fired essentially a warning shot at the guys trying to steal the guns who said, oh okay, and proceeded to try to steal the guns faster. Which the Asia then said, okay, fine, and fired a full 32 gun broadside at the battery. The city, at the time, it's the middle of the night, there are gunshots going off, and then a cannon shot, and then more gunshots, and then a giant broadside thought that the British were invading. They were not yet. The next morning, the two sides made a deal to stop stealing stuff and also to continue to feed the crew on the warship. So basically, the truce here was, you get to keep the 11 guns that you stole, but you have to continue to feed the guys on the warship. And everybody said, okay, sure, that works. That truce would hold for a little while, until in early 1776, when General Charles Lee, the guy who would get so mad at Washington later on, he would demand his own court-martial and lose, and also the guy who got in the duel in Hamilton, not Aaron Burr and Hamilton, the one before that, uh, was put in charge of the defense of New York City. There was some bickering about who was in charge of who when they arrived, but eventually it all settled, and work would begin on setting up the defense of New York by limiting how and where the British could attack from. And this is where they end up stealing the rest of the cannons from the battery in Battery Park. Because why would you just leave some perfectly good cannons there basically not being guarded by anyone? So they stole the rest of them. Charles Lee would never finish this work because he was sent down south to Charleston, where he would end up with that course marshal and get in trouble in the whole nine yards. And there was actually a British army down there who had stopped in New York City and literally, the commander literally told Charles Lee where he was going. So Charles Lee was like, ah, I better go down there. And that's what he did. So in March of 1776, George Washington declared victory in the siege of Boston, where a British army had been sitting for some time. Basically, the British loaded up onto their ships and made for sea. And Washington thought they were headed for New York City. They were actually headed for Halifax and then New York City, but Washington didn't know this, so he kind of just took off for New York City as fast as he could after he watched the British ships go out to sea. This was probably a good plan, even if it wasn't actually the plan, because he thought they were going immediately, so he booked it down there and started building defenses as soon as possible because he thought a British invasion was showing up at any time. Thankfully, it did not. Not that it would really matter, but that's, we're coming up on that. Because that British army was not coming, came a period of waiting. Waiting for the British to arrive, or, you know, something, anything to happen. The apprehension of an entirely green continental army going up against British regulars and the Hessian mercenaries the crown had bought was major. Tensions were high in the city. In June, there was a discovery in an attempted conspiracy that allegedly including setting New York City on fire. It was a conspiracy by loyalists to set New York City on fire and basically hand the city over to the British without firing a shot. Then, several of the British ships arrived in the neighborhood of New York City, and negotiations began. Well, sort of began. The colonies did a little thing over the course of a couple days in July of 1776 that made negotiations extremely difficult for the leader of the British military in North America, General William Howe, namely declaring independence. He was authorized to negotiate with the colonies, not an independent country. Well, he would be if George Washington would actually read the letters that were being sent to him. You see, the letters were addressed to a Sir Washington Esquire, and then a Sir Washington Esquire, etc., etc., and that is not a joke. After the first set of letters were rejected because they were addressed to Sir Washington Esquire, the next set of letters that were delivered were written to Sir Washington Esquire, etc., etc., essentially insinuating that he was a general, but 
refusing to actually call him General Washington. It was a whole thing. War in the 1800s was a weird, weird time. Basically, it took several weeks for them to eventually cave and address the letters to General Washington. It didn't really matter, no, because the colonies were never going to accept the agreement in the actual letters. And then we go back to waiting some more. Finally, on the night of August 26th into August 27th, the British made their attack onto Long Island, where Brooklyn currently is. The battle did not go well for the Americans, who ended up hastily retreating after massive losses behind fortifications along the East River between Brooklyn and Manhattan. There they sat, trapped for two days. They had the British coming at them in the front, and the formidable British Navy on the East River at their back. Their only hope for escape was surrender or to somehow sneak across the river, which didn't seem likely considering it's the British Navy. Washington, however, chose sneak across the river. In the dead of night, and then a very convenient fog, Washington successfully evacuated 9,000 troops across the East River without the British knowing. The last person to step on the boat from the area of Brooklyn Heights and travel back across to Manhattan Island was George Washington. So the situation is now this. The British control Brooklyn and basically everything surrounding Manhattan. The Americans control Manhattan. Washington desperately wants to hold New York City and prevent the British from cutting the newly formed United States in two. The British want to take New York City to do that very thing. But just because he wanted to retain the city doesn't mean he actually could. So he did what he had to do, and honestly what George Washington was absolutely spectacular at doing, retreat. But there was an interesting thing that happened. You see, several of Washington's officers, including Nathaniel Green, and on top of that John Jay, another founding father, proposed that Washington burn the city to the ground on his way out. Washington agreed with this, and even went so far as to officially ask Congress if they could do just that with the justification that most of the city was owned by loyalists and the British would find winter shelter there. If they burnt New York City to the ground, then there's no shelter. Congress replied basically, no, if it's lost, we can retake it, but we can't retake it if it no longer exists. Now, I just want to remind you that this is a brand new army going up against the British army, the largest military and empire in the entire world, and they were just like, eh, if they take it, we can just retake it later, it's no big deal. Like, it was just some simple thing, and I'm here to tell you, that was no simple thing, considering the Americans would never hold New York City until the end of the war anyway. But I just want you guys to remember that it was, in fact, proposed that they burn the city to the ground. So the American army then retreated north toward Harlem Heights, and the city of New York officially fell to the British on the 15th of September, 1776. Then the next day, another battle occurred in Harlem Heights, which the Americans actually won and held their ground, and was a good rallying cry for the Americans. Things then remained relatively calm in and around New York City until September 21st, 1776. Around midnight that night, a fire was spotted near an old tavern called the Fightin' Cox. It quickly started to spread northward, propelled by an extremely strong wind at the time. Combine that with the fact that most of the buildings in New York were made of wood and the roofing material was all cedar shingles, and you have the potential for a city-destroying fire. Those cedar shingles are going to burn supremely well and give off embers that will help spread that fire rapidly. Those embers are going to retain their heat as they are lofted by the wind. They'll then become stuck in shingles further down the way, or they'll be stuck in the corner of houses or the corner of buildings or wherever, allowing for separate, unconnected fires to begin in neighboring buildings, without the actual main body of the fire reaching there yet. And the other thing you have to remember, this was before most fire departments were created and the city had just been the site of an invasion. The only firefighting force was going to be whatever the British Army could muster, because New York City did technically have a volunteer fire department, but a large portion of them were patriots, and therefore left before the British got there because 
duff. So, most of the firefighting was going to be done by the British Army or the British sailors, which they did attempt to extinguish the fire. They used buckets of water and pulled down homes to create fire breaks and attempted to confine the damage to the area that was currently burning. But the real thing that saved most of New York City was the rapid wind change to the other direction. This blew the fire back onto areas it had already burned and allowed it to burn itself out. The fire did destroy one famous thing, though. It destroyed the steeple of Trinity Church. You know, the church where the Freemasons buried the Templars' treasure and national treasure, despite the fact that Trinity Church at the time was a church under the Church of England, and many of its workers would have been most likely crown loyalists, so it wouldn't have made sense for the Founding Fathers to bury their treasure there. But that's besides the point. Anyway, now that's not to say that the fire wasn't large. It destroyed about a fourth of the city, but it absolutely could have been worse. Because of where it started along the riverfront, more or less, it blew almost directly north, keeping it confined to the east shore of Manhattan Island. And it burned in a very long, narrow strip, still about a quarter of the city. But it, if it had been, if that had been a slightly different wind, then it would have been significantly worse. If it had just been ever so slightly to the northwest, it would have blown it back across Manhattan Island and destroyed probably three quarters of the city at least. It still left thousands of people homeless, thousands without any shelter of any kind. Thousands without food, clothes, what have you, and winter was going to be quickly closing in. Plus, the city would now have to house and feed all those British soldiers and sailors on top of the people that no longer had homes. Now, much debate has raged about how and potentially who set New York City on fire. As you know, I shared a potential plot about loyalists lighting New York City on fire back in June of 1776, and also told you guys that George Washington specifically requested to burn New York City to the ground as he retreated. But, there's no evidence that either of those things happened. There was much finger-pointing of multiple points of origin for the fire, but it's much more likely these multiple points of origin were actually just embers blown from the original fire igniting new buildings. One of the things that you need to understand about fire investigation and fires in general is a lot of teams... People's memory is not very good when it comes to seeing where fire was and how that fire started. They get panicked and they're running from that fire. So if you are in a city and you are running away from a fire and the fire, you know the fire is behind you. And all of a sudden you are coming up on another house that's on fire and people are running out of it carrying, you know, valuables or whatever. Your first thought might be, why is that house on fire? The fire is behind me. That means someone set that house on fire in order to burn the city down or to loot or do whatever and basically have it covered up and be a part, maybe even under orders, from the American army that just retreated away. That is a very reasonable first thought, especially when you're in a panic, your house is just burned down, you were in a panic because the British were going to invade. You've spent the last several months terrified that some random person is going to come knock on your door and you're going to get tarred and feathered because you're a crown loyalist. That is a not a far stretch at all. So it makes sense as to why there were so many reports of people seeing other people setting multiple points of origin and multiple buildings on fire because the wind's blowing so hard. You can't see the embers blowing over your head. You just feel hot behind you. You are panicked. You're running away. You see a house on fire in front of you that shouldn't be on fire, and your first thought is, hey, somebody set it on fire. The British, of course, blame the Americans, and multiple reports indicate eyewitness accounts of people setting buildings on fire and fleeing with General Howe saying that his soldiers were so enraged by this that they shot the supposed arsonists on the spot. Now, again, possible that they saw people looting buildings or they saw looters and shot them and the buildings were disconnected from the main body of the fire, so they just assumed they set it on fire and then they were running away and they just shot them because that was their first thought. But how had reason for blaming the Americans for this? It makes him losing a quarter of the city of New York much more explainable. Instead of saying, hey, 
We don't know how this happened. A quarter of New York City burned down where we're supposed to stay for the winter. He can say, oh, the treasonous, rebellious Americans attempted to deny us the city, but we fought and extinguished it and killed the arsonists in their tracks. That sounds much better. They also attempted to blame Washington, with absolutely no evidence, because they would not have known he actually suggested lighting the city before leaving it. But again, there's no evidence that Washington ordered it. There's certainly evidence that he absolutely wanted to. There's the, you know, asking Congress if he could set the city on fire before he actually evacuated. Hell, he complained privately to his cousin a couple weeks later that if it had been up to him, he'd have left the city and has ashes. He literally says, I forgot to mention that Providence or some good honest fellow has done more for us than we were disposed to do for ourselves as near one-fourth of the city is supposed consumed, however enough of it remains to answer their purposes. If he wanted to burn the city down, he probably would have done it as they were retreating, not six days after they had already left the city and it had already fallen to the British. And in that same letter to his cousin, he complains about orders given to him by Congress multiple times, but still follows all of those orders. So it's unlikely that he would have requested it had it denied and then done it again secretly and just never, ever told anyone. And it would have been extremely confusing timing to do it. Because if you're going to burn the city to the ground to deny the British access to its housing, you are going to want to start it while you're still there. Because you're going to want to start it in as many places as possible to burn as much of the city as you possibly can. To do it six days after the, it has already fallen the, to the British, with no guarantee that it would actually do any damage beyond what the one place you said it, seems to go counter to what George Washington wanted. So for all of those reasons, I think we can effectively rule out that Washington ordered New York City burned, at least in this incident. He was certainly not sorry that it burned. I mean, he was probably sorry for the people who lost their lives, but that's what he wanted to do. So, now the other thing on this, there has been some speculation that noted American spy Nathan Hale was the one who set New York City on fire as he was captured fleeing Manhattan Island in the immediate aftermath of the fire's discovery. Literally was caught by some British officers setting out to see what the fire was. But I think we can conclusively rule him out since the British would have been desperate to find the culprit of the fire and they themselves didn't even accuse Hale. They just secretly, not even publicly, hung him as a spy and moved on. He's the one that says, I regret I only have but one life to give for my country. Uh, it's likely, if they had any evidence or belief, he could have started the fire. They would have screamed it loud and proud and paraded him through the streets, saying, this American set New York City on fire, blah, 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 because it would have been great propaganda for all of the rest of the colonists of... This is what happens when the American colon the Continental Army leaves your city. They try and burn it to the ground, and we British are here to save it. Like that is fantastic propaganda that they could have used and likely would have used if they, you know, had any evidence that he'd actually done it. The fact that they didn't pretty much indicates to me that he didn't do it. So that leaves three options: accidental, the British did it, or some random American got drunk and did it. Now, it's unlikely the British did it. They would need the city for winter quarters, and they knew this. Burning your own place to stay is a bad idea, and I think we can conclusively rule them out. There were also rumors that they set it on fire so they could loot it, but that also seems like a bad idea, considering they could just loot it anyway without setting a quarter of the city on fire where they would have to stay. Next up, we have some random American. The British interrogated over 200 people in connection with the fire. They got nothing. Absolutely nothing. While it's possible that they just didn't find the right person, it still seems like it wasn't a set fire. And then, lastly, we have accidental ignition. This one seems most likely. The narrow strip of burned area lines up with a single point of origin with a wind-driven fire. In the chaos of fleeing from an invading army, there are tons of potential accidental ignition source, a candle left burning, a cooking fire left burning, smoking material just tossed to the side, you name it. Fires happened all the time back then, and basically every city was a tinderbox just waiting for the right conditions to go up. 
So it's very convenient timing, especially for Washington, but it does seem most likely that the fire was in fact an accident. Now this fire caused a decent amount of damage physically, but not as much as it could have, but it psychologically tormented the British. They took it as an affront to their existence and took that out on the remaining city of New York. They instituted martial law and left it the entire time the city was under occupation. They were terrified of it happening again and were convinced the Americans had burnt it and would do so again. So they ruled New York City with an iron fist for the next seven years. The British confiscated all churches that didn't belong to the Church of England and turned them into prisons, hospitals, or barracks for soldiers, and they confiscated any property belonging to suspected patriots. The specter of the fire would hang over the British in charge of New York City until they left in November of 1783, two years after their surrender at the Siege of Yorktown, just in case anyone is taking score at home. So that's the end of our first great fire. With that, we're going to move to the next time New York City tried to burn itself to the ground, 1835. Immediately in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, New York City was named the capital of the newly formed United States and was where George Washington was inaugurated as the first president. It then later moved down to Philadelphia and then to where it sits today, Washington, D.C. In 1825, the Erie Canal connected New York City completely to the Midwest and allowed the city to really expand in growth and become the largest city in the United States. New York City had become a fairly large city by 1835 and an extremely important center for American trade, manufacturing, and immigration. It's hard to understate how important New York City was to the United States. The city was bigger than Philadelphia or Boston, and the population had begun to show it. But the fire department did not. They had not scaled properly with the rest of the city and were woefully under-equipped and undermanned. On top of that, they weren't career firefighters. FDNY at the time was entirely volunteer. They'd literally hang out around the station in the attempts to hear an alarm and respond to a fire. And then on top of all that, the water supply was garbage. They had some cisterns around that would support firefighting activities, but a lot of it was reliant, reliant upon access to the Hudson and East Rivers. And then, a large portion of New York City was built of wooden structures, because it was cheap and easy to build with very similarly to Chicago in the Great Chicago Fire. Wood was plentiful and available in mass amounts, meaning they could put up a building at a rapid pace as they were needed. So fires were absolutely a consistent concern, especially if you had several fires in a row. A tired fire department is not an effective fire department. And another thing that was an issue in New York City at the time was the buildings were built extremely close to each other with very narrow roads. So if you did have a fire in one building, it wouldn't take that much effort to have the fire spread to a second building, or a third building, or a fourth building, or whatsoever. So you would frequently have fairly large conflagrations that would spread, you know, two, three buildings involved, and would be extremely difficult to put out. That brings us to December of 1835. Everything that could go wrong, would go wrong. That December had been bitterly cold, and the night of December 16th, 1835, was no different, with it being reported to be well below zero. Some sources report that a blizzard had blanketed the city in snow, and the winds were extremely high at gale force. Around 9pm, Firewatch member William Hayes smelled smoke near Merchant Street. Upon a little bit of investigation, they discovered the Comstock and Andrews Warehouse at 23 Merchant Street on fire. They opened the door, and the fire was floor to ceiling already and massively out of control. One of the first officers on site noted the flames had already broken through the roof just after a few minutes had been discovered and were being whipped out of control by the gale force winds. They would immediately raise the alarm, but there would be a delay in response. You see... FDNY had spent the last two nights fighting rather large fires, and huge parts of the fire department were exhausted. It would take a bit for them to muster and gather supplies to fight the growing conflagration. When they did arrive, they tried to hit nearby fire hydrants and cisterns. Unfortunately, they were frozen. Some were working, some weren't. They were going to need more water for this fire. 
so they went to the next source of water, the East River. Problem was, the East River was, you know, also frozen, so they'd have to break through the ice to pump water out. And then they'd have to make a line of engines that were pumping back to the source of the fire. And if there's anything you need to know about fighting fire and freezing water, it's that the water will freeze extremely fast. Like, if you are out in below zero temperatures fighting a fire, if you are not regularly inside the building, if you go inside, spray some water, you get wet when you fight a fire. It's just one of those things that happened. If you go back outside and you were standing outside for a bit, you will freeze solid. I have experienced that firsthand. My very first house fire that I fought was in a blizzard. I went inside to put the fire out, uh, came back outside, was standing while other people were doing uh, overhaul inside, and I went to take my air pack off, and it was frozen to my back. So I had to sit in the fire engine for about 15 minutes to defrost my body so that I could remove my gear. So imagine standing in, you know, negative temperatures, negative 7 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 8 degrees Fahrenheit, you're trying to spray water outside in gale force winds, it is going to freeze on you rapidly. Unfortunately for these firefighters, they didn't have a heated fire engine to go sit in to melt their gear. Their solution was to pour brandy on themselves, because the brandy lowers the freezing temperature of the water, because it mixes with the water, and alcohol freezes a lower temperature. So... That was their solution. They just poured brandy on themselves. They also probably drank some of it, which I can't blame them. Anyway, then, even when they started to put water on the fire, the wind would whip the water back away from the fire, and the embers emitting were beginning to set nearby buildings on fire. So, these hoses don't have the pressure that we currently do. So the pressure coming out of these hoses isn't going to be nearly enough to fight this wind unless you're standing with the wind at your back. And even then, it's going to spray the water in weird directions. So you're not getting the amount of water on this fire that you need to properly extinguish it. Within 30 or so minutes of the discovery of the fire, fully 50 buildings were fully engulfed in flames. And these aren't just any buildings. This is Wall Street, the location of the New York Stock Exchange. This was where the financial heart of New York City was. It wasn't homes. It was warehouses full of millions of dollars worth of goods that would be shipped all over the United States and the world. And because of that, they weren't just dealing with a fuel load that was whatever furnishings were in the houses like in the previous Great Fire of New York City. This fuel load is spectacularly higher. This is boxes and furniture and silk and clothing and all sorts of fabrics and raw wood and other raw material that's going to burn hot and it's going to burn well and it's going to be extremely difficult to put out because it's deep-seated fuel. So once it gets going, it's just going to burn and burn and burn and burn. Not to mention, these are some of the biggest buildings in the city at the time. The collapse risk would be extremely high. And the southern part of Manhattan, like I said, wasn't the grid we know it as today. Some of it was still kind of haphazard from when the town was first settled. So the streets were narrower, the buildings all made of wood, and there were people running through the streets trying to save their stuff. The fire rapidly began to spread from that first 50 to over hundreds. The fire department and onlookers went from trying to contain the fire to realizing they needed to get their stuff and themselves to safety. So they began to pull goods out of the warehouses and store them wherever they could find. Which is a problem, because, like I just mentioned, the streets were narrow. So there's all these buildings on fire, and your only escape route is now full of random things merchants are yanking out of their buildings so they don't lose everything in the fire. In order to get out, or get to the next burning building, or whatever, you had to pick your way around random things in the street that may or may not be on fire. It's not great. And it also didn't work. There were several buildings that they were moving goods to to store inside. Those buildings would then burn down and they would lose everything. Eventually, interestingly enough, several casks of turpentine leaked, caught fire, and spread that fire into the East River, making it look like the river itself was burning. The fire was so large, the glow of the flames could allegedly be seen as far away as Philadelphia, 
and Philadelphia activated their fire department because they thought the forests nearby were on fire. So, as we talked about in our previous episodes on city fires, there reaches a point where you can't successfully fight the fire with water. You don't have enough manpower, you don't have enough equipment, and you just don't have the water available to actually extinguish the bulk of the fire. So you have to create fire breaks. Now, when we talked about the campfire, we talked about, you know, digging areas out with a bulldozer or whatever, digging holes so you can clear an area of no fuel. It's very difficult to do that in a city because it's buildings. It's not just underbrush or trees or what have you. You have to pull the buildings down, but that's going to be difficult if the building's well built. So what better way to do that than to blow them up? So, several U.S. Marines were sent to the Brooklyn Naval Yard in order to get gunpowder to blow up buildings that were a good distance away from the fire to create fire breaks. Fortunately, they made it across the frozen East River in a tiny boat and successfully made it back with their delivery of gunpowder without it blowing them up in the boat because they had to put them in bags and guard them from embers that were blowing down onto the river. They then successfully blew up several buildings and stopped the fire in its tracks. It would take several days for the last of the spot fires to be put out as firefighters from multiple states worked through the financial heart of downtown New York City to fully extinguish the fire. In the end, only two people would die in the blaze, which is an achievement considering between 500 and 700 total buildings were destroyed and somewhere near $20 million worth of damage occurred. And that is $20 million in 1835, which is about $650 million today. That's a lot of money. That is a huge fire. 23 of the 26 insurance companies based in New York City at the time went bankrupt. The total area burned stretched from Wall Street in the north to South Street in the south and across to the East River, which doesn't seem like a lot of New York City now, considering what New York City is. But it was a huge chunk in 1835, and if you want to imagine what that would be like today, that area currently houses a huge portion of the financial institutions in the United States. That would include the New York Stock Exchange burning to the ground. This was a huge impact on not just New York City, but the U.S. as a whole. In the aftermath of the fire, the southern portion of Manhattan was essentially completely rebuilt. Avenues were widened, more strict building codes were enforced, It completely changed New York City, essentially, into what we know it as today. It was mostly rebuilt with stone and metal buildings. Wood buildings were essentially not allowed to be built at all. So it really made the grid that we know southern New York as, the Wall Street area as, as it is today. The official cause of the fire was never determined, although it was believed to have been caused by a gas from a burst pipe being ignited by a coal stove. I don't really know how accurate that would be, but I could possibly see that. It seems unlikely to be a set fire. There wasn't really anybody in the area. And, I mean, it could be an unattended candle or smoking materials or things like that. One of those accidental fires that you just kind of had on occasion back then. And, you know, of course we're not done, because I said there was going to be a trilogy. Every good disaster story in New York City always ends up as a trilogy, and... It's always the last one that doesn't get the most attention. So, between 1835 and our next Great Fire, ten years later, there was one major update to New York City. The Croton Aqueduct. This aqueduct was necessary because water supply in New York City was such a huge problem with the population boom. Most of the water around the island was brackish, so it was unsuitable to drink. And a lot of people drawing from wells had lowered the water table to a level that was unsustainable. This led to an increase of diseases, specifically cholera, and a high mortality rate, so they built an aqueduct. This fixed a lot of the water problems in the city, including the issue in the last Great Fire, the lack of available water to put the fire out. So, on Saturday, July 19th, 1845, at around 2.30 in the morning, a fire broke out in the store of J.L. Van Doren, an oil merchant and steering candle manufacturer located at 34 New Street. For reference, that's barely a block away from the previous Great Fire. 
this area of Manhattan, is really getting it rough in this episode. But again, we have the same problem as before. It's still a volunteer department, and it doesn't matter who you are, getting up at 2.30 in the morning to fight a fire is exhausting. But that's not all. The fire was in a part of town where essentially no one was after dark. This wasn't a residential area, and there didn't happen to be a fire watch member walking by at the time. It was completely empty. There was no one there. Which means that the fire had a 30-minute head start to start burning before it was discovered. And 30 minutes in fire time is an eternity. Two minutes in fire time is the difference between life and death. 30 minutes is you're basically out of control at that point. And the major problem here, the warehouse was full of whale oil and supplies for making candles, which are notoriously good for burning. So it's a huge fire load already on top of it being allowed to burn for 30 minutes in a wood building. The fire department's behind the eight ball early on in the response. They're not even in the response yet, and they're already struggling. Luckily, an engine company, Engine Company 22 in fact, was able to get on scene and start putting water on the fire. Unluckily for them, the fire inside the warehouse had grown so large that they could no longer fight from inside the building, so their commander ordered them to evacuate. One member of the crew, Francis Hart, was inside the building and could not make it down the stairs, so he escaped onto the roof and was trying to escape that way across the rooftops when the building exploded. Literally exploded. He was blown several buildings away through the air and landed with minimal injuries besides a sprained ankle. His crew members were by Engine 22, and they were launched across the street in the explosion. Several of his crew members were injured, but it appears that none of them died. One of the members of Engine Company 42, however, Augustus L. Cowdery, was killed in the explosion. He was nearby, fighting a fire in a different building because it had spread at this point, and when the building exploded, it killed him. Unfortunately, his remains were never recovered, so we don't know what exactly happened to him. There were reports from the aftermath of the fire that the explosion was so loud that it was heard as far away as Sandy Hook, New Jersey, which is a pretty good distance away across the harbor. Immediately after this explosion, the fire took off and spread in all different directions because, once again, this is in the merchant part of town. These are warehouses full of a ridiculously large fuel load, and the fire department is behind trying to play catch-up and getting enough manpower and equipment to the scene that is rapidly expanding and then getting enough water hooked up and pumped through to actually extinguish the fire and stop it in its tracks and also create fire breaks because once again we are in a city-wide conflagration the only way you're going to stop this with the manpower you have available is by creating fire breaks which means pulling down buildings blowing up buildings doing whatever you have to do to create a dead zone where there is no more fuel for the fire to burn it's a daunting task Luckily, there was no insane wind and an actual water supply this time, as firefighters were able to bring the fire more or less under control by 1 p.m. the same day, so it burned for about 11 hours. It still destroyed 350 or so buildings and caused 5 to $10 million in damage, or about $200 million in damage today. In total, this fire killed 30 people, four firefighters, and 26 civilians, making it at least known as the deadliest fire in the, of the great New York City fires, because we don't know how many people were killed in the 1776 fire. We have no idea. The cause of the fire was not determined. The owners of the warehouse where the fire originated were arrested under the suspicion of having gunpowder in their building illegally, but after an investigation, it was determined they did not actually have any of the gunpowder that were alleged to have had, and they were released. This fire probably going to main, remain undetermined. It was most likely accidental. Someone left something burning inside or something hot inside, but we'll never know. It could have been arson. Seems unlikely, but it's possible. It's one of those fires that you're just never going to know what actually happened there.
In the end, the 1845 fire would prove that the changes that were made to the building code and the widening of the avenues and the upgrades to the water supply and the fire department were effective in fighting the blaze. Because while it did burn 350 buildings, which is nothing minor, it burned less area, less buildings, because the 1835 fire burned 13 total acres. That's a huge area. This one burned less than that, and the area that it got to, once it got north farther, because it started farther south, once it got north to the area that had burned in the 1835 fire, it died out because the buildings there were made of stone and metal and the avenues were wider and the buildings were slightly farther apart. So it gave the fire department a chance to get caught up with the water supply they had from the aqueduct that was built. And it proved that they weren't done making changes. The fire department needed to be upgraded further. The building codes needed to be upgraded further. And it really proved that FDNY could no longer be volunteer. They needed a career department. And not long after this fire, FDNY would cease to be a volunteer department and would become career and one of the largest fire departments in the world that we have today. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. New York City really took a beating in this one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on all of the social medias, Twitter, TikTok, all that kind of stuff. It's disastrous history, just history without the vowels on Twitter. Um, I also have now have a YouTube where I put up the episodes so you can listen to them there. I am, once the baby is born, I'm going to try and make more uh, YouTube videos explaining things in depth. So if you have things that I've talked about in the episodes that you want diagrams for or maps for or things like that or you want me to explain them in more detail please let me know i will do my best to make a video of them once the baby is here which should be in the next couple days um she's due in on may 13th technically but it's likely that the baby will be born here in the next it could be today it could be tomorrow so anyway i'm rambling i'm glad you guys listening thank you guys so much as always Stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.